So if we have not met before, my name is James. I am on staff here at the church. And if you have your Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 3. If you prefer, you can use your phone. That's where we're going to kind of camp out uh, this morning. Now, uh, my wife doesn't like me when we go to bed because um, when I turn out my light, I'm asleep within two to three minutes. Like I'm I'm just out. Um, so falling asleep, I don't, I don't struggle with that at all. Like I, people who are like, I lay in bed for hours trying to fall asleep. I don't get that. Now, here's the thing. Um, you, like 4.35 a.m., my brain is awake. Um, and it just kicks in. And like I, I, my body's going, I just want to sleep. But my brain's like, no, let's do some processing. Let's, let's do some thinking and and you know what what probably happens is like you start running through scenarios in your mind um you start going through uh just the different things that could happen and and here's what usually it starts with it goes what if and and fill in the blank with what or whatever it is for you and so may, maybe like you you lie awake at night and you're you're going okay what if um that person that I had the conversation with yesterday misunderstands me or misunderstood me? What if, um, you know, this thing doesn't get done? It really needs to get done. What if the diagnosis, it comes back and it's, it's bad? What, what if um, the kids get sick? What if the car uh, needs repairs? What if we don't have enough money to cover the bills this month? And like fill in the blank with whatever you want to put in what if, uh, after what if. Now, Here's the thing, you, you know what it's like, whether you're, you're kind of running through it while lying in bed or you're just in the middle of the day, the more you entertain those what-if questions, the more you tend to worry and find yourself growing fearful about possible situations in life. And, and you're kind of wondering, like, what if the worst-case scenario happens? Um, what, we, we get fearful about those what-ifs that they could cause us harm or they could ruin us. And so I, I want to ask you this question today is, how do you respond to those what-if questions that, that enter your mind? Um, how do you respond to those what-if questions that enter your mind? And I think today's text, Daniel chapter 3, gives us a good way to respond to them. And so we're going to be uh, Daniel chapter 3. I've kind of cut it down a little bit and shortened some things for the sake of time. So we're not here till 2 p.m. Um, and so just understand, like, if you're following along, I've shortened some things for the sake of time. Now, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the area of Babylon. Then he called for the leaders and all other officers in his kingdom to come to the special service for the statue he had set up. So they all came for the special service and stood in front of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the man who made announcements for the king said in a loud voice, People, nations, and those of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, you must bow down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who doesn't bow down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, we don't know what this 90-foot, 9-foot wide statue looked like, um, but it's big. Now, some say it's an image of a Babylonian god that he's, Nebuchadnezzar, saying worship. Others say it's actually an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So this might be like a giant uh, selfie before cameras exist. He's like, look at how great I look. But, but here's the question we have to ask is why, why does Nebuchadnezzar have this 90-foot statue built? Because you don't 
just like go, I'm going to build something 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, covered in gold for no reason. And so it it probably has something to do with Daniel chapter 2, what takes place there. Um, The the king has a dream, and and Daniel, the guy the book is named after, he interprets the dream for the king. He doesn't just interpret it, he tells the king what he dreamed about. Um, And and so he says, king, you saw this vision and and this giant statue. The head was gold, but then as it went down through the body, the metals changed. And, and he he's interprets this dream for him. He says, the head of gold, that is you, Nebuchadnezzar. That is Babylon. But as the, as the gold or the metals change down through the body, it's kind of empires are going to take pl- uh, over as a supreme nation in the world. And so this statue that Nebuchadnezzar built might be uh, a response to that dream. And, and by building it so big and, and plating it in gold, here's what Nebuchadnezzar might be trying to say. Babylon is here to say, stay. Uh, you're never going to stop talking about how great Babylon is. You're never going to stop talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And, and so he, he builds this, this giant statue and he calls all of his officers, the people from different nations to come and, and to this giant worship service and, and to bow down. And by having them do this, this might be Nebuchadnezzar kind of rubbing it in their face, uh, telling them, sending them a message that he and the gods of Babylon and uh, the nation of Babylon is greater than them. It's greater than their gods. It's greater than their nations. It's kind of like pledge your loyalty um, to Babylon and recognize who is the best. Now, just in case some of these officials are going, so what if we choose not to go? And what if we choose not to bow down? Nebuchadnezzar gives them this little motivator. Do it or you'll get thrown into a blazing, fiery furnace. Um, and so, like, we have to understand this giant furnace, it's, it's like a big kiln. It's got a big opening at the top. It's massive. This giant opening at the bottom to put charcoal in and to, to remove the ashes afterwards. And so this thing's intended for baking bricks, but Nebuchadnezzar repurposes it at times as well. And, and so many, many of the nations at this time that Babylon has brought kind of into captivity or has represented there are polytheistic. And so they're not like there's one God, they're going there's, there's a plurality, there's, there's tons of different gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is kind of saying like, if, if you don't bow down and, and worship, you're going to be fired, literally, like thrown into this blazing furnace. And, and so bowing down and worshiping another god, like that's not a big deal to some of them. It's better than getting thrown into a furnace. And so many of the people bow down in Daniel chapter 3, verse 7. It shows us they bow down and worship the statue whenever the national orchestra starts playing. It, it might have been the Babylonian national anthem. Now, Daniel and his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been promoted to high positions within uh, Nebuchadnezzar's government because God's hand has been upon them. Greg talked about this last week in in Daniel chapter 1, that it's like God, uh, they they were obedient to God, and you could see how they were different from the other uh, people that were brought into kind of Nebuchadnezzar's court. And, And then Daniel interprets this dream, and so they're just kind of elevated and elevated, getting these better positions. Um, not everybody's happy for these young Hebrew men, though. Um, not everybody's going, this is great for you guys. There's some native Babylonians who are jealous of the positions that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and probably Daniel hold, and they're going, we want to get that competition out of the way, but they're going, how do we do this? 
Well, this, this worship service, this idol worship service provides them with what they believe is the opportunity uh, to, to do it. And so Daniel chapter 3, verse 12, they, these native Babylonians go to the king and they say, there are some men of Judah that did not pay attention to your order. They do not serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. And so uh, these men, they go to the king and they accuse uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of ingratitude for the positions that they hold in Nebuchadnezzar's court, in his government, but also saying like, they, they, they disrespect your gods. Now, Daniel is curiously absent in that, that list of people who don't bow down to the, the idol or to the statue. And, and all we can do is speculate as to why. Um, some, some have said, well, maybe Daniel didn't have, see an issue with bowing down to this, this statue. Highly unlikely knowing uh, what we know about Daniel. Others say Daniel's so high in the government that he doesn't have to go to this worship service. Some say, you know what, Daniel's so powerful that these, these guys are afraid to accuse him because he could make it bad for them. The one I kind of like the best is that Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel. And he knows that if he has this giant idol worship service and um, Daniel is present, Daniel's going to kind of rain on Nebuchadnezzar's parade, be a party pooper. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends Daniel out of town on business to, to make sure he's not there to kind of rain on the parade. I, I like that one. We're not exactly sure why he's not there. But here's, here's the thing. Regardless of, of, of where Daniel is, Nebuchadnezzar's not expecting that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to have an issue uh, with this. Now, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true that you do not serve my gods nor worship the gold statue I have set up? In a moment you will again hear the band, and if you bow down and worship the statue I made, that will be good. But if you do not worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. What God will be able to save you from my power then? Um, and so, like, a blazing furnace doesn't sound that good. It sounds pretty bad. And so you got to go, what, what is worth um, risking your job? What is worth risking your life over? Like what conviction prevents these guys from bowing down? And it, it kind of goes back to the big 10 uh, commandments that God had given to Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 20, verse three, it says, you must not have any other gods except me. You must not make for yourselves an idol. You must not worship or serve any idol because I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. Now, there are times in your life where you have a difficult decision to make. Um, maybe, maybe it's a decision where it's like, okay, am I going to propose to this person? Maybe it's, am I going to accept this job offer? For some of you, it's like, okay, are we going to take our family from the country we call home and we're going to move to a country we've never really been to before? And those are difficult decisions. And, and what do we often do? We say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to try and discern God's will on this and see where God is leading me. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't have to pray about this one going, oh, what does God want us to do when it comes to this idol? Because God has been abundantly clear. My people don't bow down to other gods and worship and serve them. Now, imagine this. Can you, can you imagine the pressure that must have been on these guys? Like, if you're in their situation, it's one thing to read it. So again, one thing, put yourself in it. You're in their situation, and it's kind of this. Like, you might start going, well, it's not that big a deal if I bow down. I think God might understand if I compromise, because 
look, my job is on the line. My livelihood, I got to support a family. Maybe you're going like, my, my very life is on the line if I don't bow down. And, and so there might be some pressure to, to kind of compromise there, but these guys don't. And so p- picture, picture the scene. Giant 90-foot statue, sea of people, and they're all bowed down worshiping this thing. And three guys stand alone amongst that sea of worshipers. And it's like, they're going to stand out. And so you can imagine some of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's friends, they're, they're kind of like looking at them and like, guys, the music played. Bow down. Like, you got to kneel or this is going to go poorly for you. And these guys, they, they continue to stand as people are going, what is wrong with you? Now, I, I imagine for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a lot of what-if questions running through their minds. Like, as they go to the worship service, like, what, what if we don't bow down? How will this play out? As, as they stand there, as everybody else is bowing, they're probably going, okay, what if the king calls us to go and stand before him and answer? And then that happens, and there's probably a lot of what-if questions um, going through their minds as they walk to see the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he gives them this ultimatum. And Nebuchadnezzar probably thinks he's being pretty gracious here. He, he probably likes these guys. And he gives them a second chance. He goes like, you got to bow down, but if you don't, you're going to die. And, and he tries to appeal to reason. He's going like, look at the situation here. Look who I am. Who's going to save you? Who's going to save you if you don't bow down? Verse 16, they answered the king saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you. If you throw us into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from the furnace. He will save us from your power, O king. But even if God does not save us, we want you, O king, to know this. We will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So we read this and go like, wow, that's courageous. Can you imagine saying that to, to who is probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And so here, here's what we see. These three men have no doubt about God's power to save them. Like they think about Israel's history and, and, and God had like extended his hand in powerful ways to deliver his people before. And so like they, they know about Egypt, God, the plagues, and then he parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. But at the same time, they think back to the history and go, but there's been times where God has not extended his hand to deliver us to save us. Like God allowed Israel to be in Egypt for 400 years of suffering. And, and they allowed, God allowed Babylon to kind of come in and take uh, these young Jewish men into captivity and also destroy Jerusalem. And so here's the thing. They're going, it's clear God has the power to save and deliver us from this. It's not so clear what God is going to do in this situation though. That's less clear. And so whether God decides to save them or not, they're not going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And so these uh, three men, they're going to obey the word of God over the word of the king. And this is often what conviction looks like. It's courage in the face of, of, of the unknown. It's courage in the face of hostility. Now, Daniel chapter 3, verse 19, it says, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they were tied up and thrown into the blazing furnace while still wearing their clothes. The furnace was made so hot, the flames killed the strong soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. Firmly tied, they fell into the blazing furnace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not a guy who's used to having people say 
no to him. And so when they say no to him, he's not going like, the fire as it is is good enough. He goes, make this thing as hot as it can get. I want these guys to suffer. And so when, when we were kids, my brother, he once pulled a, a pot of tea down upon himself, just freshly poured out of the kettle, and he got second-degree burns. Like, it, boiling water, you know, it hurts. It causes some damage. Now, just to understand, charcoal burns at over 1,100 degrees Celsius. Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. There's quite a difference there. And so it's not like the, feet, the, the heat that you might feel like roasting uh, hamburgers or something over a barbecue. It's, 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 it's as intense as it can get. It's, it's such intense heat that these like gym rat, buff, creatine-infused soldiers who take them up to throw them into the furnace are like, the heat's so intense, it kills them. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tied hand and foot, and so they fall into the furnace. And, and so here's, here's where you expect the story to end. Kind of be like, and then they all died. That's, that's what you might expect. And then the moral of the story would be, don't defy powerful rulers. Listen to what kings say. But that's not what the story, or how the story ends. In verse 24, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar was so surprised that he jumped to his feet. He asked the men who advised him, didn't we tie up only three men, and throw them into the fire. They answered, yes, O king. The king said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. They are not tied up, and they are not burned. The fourth man looks like a son of the gods. And so this is not Nebuchadnezzar's first, like, fiery furnace experience. He's probably thrown people into the furnace before. It's probably his favorite punishment. And so they're thrown in, or they fall in, and Nebuchadnezzar has to do a double take. Because these guys are standing and walking around. They're, they're untied. And so like the fall into the, the furnace itself should have killed the guys. The heat, nevertheless, should have killed them as well. And, and so they're, they're up and they're walking around, meandering inside the furnace. I guess there's not much else you do when you're inside of a furnace. But um, I, I'm a bit of a World War II geek. And so like I, I read books on it. I like to watch movies. And I remember watching one in which they depict, depicted a, a soldier using a flamethrower to kind of clear out enemies out of tunnels. And like, if you don't know what a flamethrower is, it's exactly what it sounds like. This thing with fuel in the back, just press a button and it just spits flames and it, it goes pretty far. And so they go to the entrance of the tunnel. They, they use the flamethrower. The flames go down the tunnel and it it would catch people on fire. Now, in this depiction, it was pretty gruesome. Like, the, the guy doesn't stroll out. He's in flames and go, I surrender. You got me. That's not what happens. They, they run out of the tunnel. They're panicking. They're in pain. Like, the, the fire and the heat and the pain is so bad that, like, you're out of control. But these guys are, are standing and walking around inside of the furnace. But it's not just that. Nebuchadnezzar, he sees a fourth person in there, and he describes this, this person like a son of the gods. And so what, what you, you have to understand what this is saying. is like the, the, the glory, the brightness of this fourth person in the furnace outshines the fire of the furnace. There's something so glorious about this person that Nebuchadnezzar is going, that, that, that person is divine. There's something supernatural about them. Now, who is the fourth person? Some scholars would say this is a, a theophany or a Christophany. A theophany is this physical appearance of God here on earth. Christophany is 
pretty much the same, but it's the Son of God appearing pre-incarnate before he's baby Jesus lying in the manger. Some say it's like this pre-incarnate cameo of Jesus. And so that, that the Son of God or God would at times appear physically here on earth. And, and some say, no, this is just an angel. But regardless of, of where you kind of fall on that one, I, I like the Christophany one personally. It's okay if you disagree. What this shows is that God is physically present with his people in their times of trouble and distress. Like Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, God had said, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you cross rivers, you will not drown. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, nor will the flames hurt you. And so what's important of seeing in that verse is this, that God is with his people during our trials. He promises his presence with his people in their difficult times, in their trials, ensuring that those difficulties are not going to um, utterly overwhelm them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he calls the three guys to come out of the furnace in verse 27. It says, When they came out, everyone crowded around them and saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Their hair was not burned, their robes were not burned, and they didn't even smell like smoke. Who's excited for campfire season? Like, I, I'm, I'm trying to, on the side of our house, I'm trying to get it done in time to build a fire pit because we love um, fires during the summer and stuff. And so, um, you know what it's like, though, when you sit around a campfire. Uh, you, you don't necessarily notice it at first, but the next morning you get up and maybe you're camping, you throw that sweater on, you stink like smoke. Like, people can go, you were sitting around a campfire, weren't you? It, it's, it's obvious. And, and these three guys, they come out. Their hair isn't singed. Their clothes are not burned. They don't even smell like smoke. And, and so what this is saying, this, this is a testimony to God's power to protect his people, total protection. Now, I can understand, if you're a little skeptical of that, I, I can get it. But I would ask you to think about this. Why shouldn't the author of the elements, the creator of the elements, be able to have command and control over his creation. It's, it's not actually that ridiculous when you think about it. Now, Daniel chapter 3, verse 28, it says, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their God has sent his angel and saved his servants from the fire. These three men trusted their God and refused to obey my command. They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God other than their own. No God, other God can save his people like this. So the question we started with was this. How do you respond when that what-if question enters your mind? And there's, there's times where when you ask those what-if questions, the fears, they loom large. You go, what if, what if, what if? And you start thinking about it, and it's like, oh man, what, what could ever save me from this if it happens now, we all worship and serve something as first and foremost in our lives. Now, if you're going like, I'm not a Christian, I don't, I'm an atheist, I, I, I don't worship or serve God, that's okay, glad you're here, glad you're watching. But, but here's the thing, you worship, you serve, um, you devote your life to something as first and foremost. There's something that you're saying, this is the most important, I build my life around it. And, and like, often it's created things. Now, we go, man, these foolish people, it's, it's a statue they built, and they're, they're bowing down to it, and they're worshiping, and they're serving it. Oh, man, they're so ignorant. But here's the thing. We worship and serve created things all the time as well. Like, 
maybe you know somebody who's a ridiculous fan of a sports team, or maybe you are that person. I don't know. And like, so every piece of clothing you have has this, the team's logo on it. You brush your teeth. It's like, oh, I got a Toronto Maple Leafs toothbrush. I'm so cool. Um, and then you've got a room in your house that looks like a gift shop, like blew up or threw up inside of your, your house. And then think about some of the people who go to these games. And they, they, like, they strip down, they paint their bodies, there's no shame. Um, and they're dancing and they're singing and they're yelling. Like, that is borderline worship, I would say, at times. And so all of us have a God of choice. Whether it's God or it's what Scripture would describe as an idol. And so maybe you choose money. Maybe you choose reputation. Maybe you choose success, power, influence. Now here is the question for you. Could our fears of what if stem from a knowledge that the God we've chosen to build our lives around isn't mighty to save? Could it be that we know our God of choice won't stand the tests that come along in life? Like we know that some gods are going to crumble under crisis. Money, money is, I mean, money's neutral, um, and if you have money, you, you can buy quite a few things. You can get quite a few things. But here's the thing. There's some things that money is powerless to do. Like think about COVID-19. We know, uh, we know rich people who get this disease are, are dying from it as well, or this virus. Like it's, it's, your money isn't really going to save you from it if you get it. It's, you're not at any really more of an advantage necessarily. Think about um, if you have power and influence, like you, you can have those things, but sometimes like those aren't going to save relationships that you have with people that are just disintegrating. And so like every earthly, uh, every earthly God that we have, it has its limitations. And so here's the question. Do you actually trust the foundation you are building your life on? Is the, is the, is the God you're building your life around really solid enough to withstand the storms of life. Now, now God, he, he commands, he asks for, he demands our worship in Scripture. And, and God being God, he is, like, by definition, the most powerful, the most excellent being in existence. Now, as a loving father, I ask my, my son, Seth, and my daughter, Jane, to do what I believe is best for them. So it's like, don't go play in traffic. Don't eat food that you find on the floor. Um, eventually, it'll be things like, please don't do drugs and, and all those things. And we ask those things because we believe that's what's best for them. Now, God, when he commands or asks for our worship, people are going, man, he's an egotistical megalomaniac. He just wants all the worship. How, how can you, how can you uh, worship somebody like this? But those same people, if he didn't, would turn around and go, God is unloving because he doesn't ask us to do what is best. Now, what, what God does is he asks what's for our best by asking us to build our lives around what is best, which as God, he is best. Now, maybe you're like, I worship God, but I still obsess over the what ifs of life. Uh, I still worry about that. And I would ask this, is, is your view of God big enough? Do you believe that he is mighty to save because fear, fear is going to tempt us to compromise. Compromise, sorry. It's when we're afraid of missing out, being put out, being left out, being singled out, whether that's in life or, or in culture, that, that we're going to lose sight of our convictions. And again, fear will tempt us to compromise. And so do you believe that God is mighty enough to save? And, and the answer to our question of what if 
our fears of what if is found in the statement, even if. Like, what, what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar? They, they say, um, even if we get thrown into the fire, God is able to save us, and he will save us. Even if God doesn't deliver us, we will not compromise. And so fear says, what if? Faith says, even if. Fear says, what if? Faith says, even if. Now, the response that they say there, it seems kind of contradictory. It's like, oh, God's going to save us, but if he doesn't. Um, but, but it's actually the appropriate response when we face crisis, when our mind starts running away from us. It's this, this confidence that God is able to deliver, but it's not presumptuous in demanding a miracle. When, when Christians face crisis or hardship or difficulty, we tend to respond in one of two ways. There's kind of two we, we could say extremes. And the first one is all about the will of God. And we're saying God's will be done. Um, and it, it sounds good. I mean, Jesus says pray, like when, right off the bat in the Lord's Prayer, pray for God's will to be done. And so when we're praying, we're like, God, I pray that you would heal this person, but your will be done. And we don't want to be sound presumptuous. We don't want to appear that we're demanding God to do something. But here's the thing, because I've been there where you can get to this point where it's like, if I'm just going to pray for God's will to be done, why bother praying? Because he's just going to do what he wants to do. Now, the other extreme is this, where, where we think that if we have enough faith, if we ask in faith, if we believe hard enough that God's going to heal, that God's going to move, God has to respond to our great faith and pretty much give us what we're asking for. Now, these two camps, they don't always play together well because here's one. One will say, you don't have enough faith. You don't believe enough. And the other would say, well, you can't treat God as if he's this vending machine that just distributes miracles when we punch in the right code for the prayer. And so there's kind of some differences there. But here's the thing. It's not necessarily an either or, but a both. And the answer, as with many things, is somewhere kind of in the middle. And so whatever extreme that we might tend to lean towards, I think the other, the other one can actually teach us some things. One tells us to pray expectantly for healing or deliverance, and the other tells us how to respond when God doesn't heal or deliver in the way that we would hope or according to kind of our timeline. Like scripture tells us that whatever you are facing, God has the power to intervene, that he has the power to redeem, that he has the power to, to heal whatever pain and brokenness you, you might face. In James chapter 4, James writes, Anyone who is having troubles should pray, and the prayer that is said with faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will heal that person, and if the person has sinned, the sins will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so God can heal you. When a believing person prays, great things happen. In James chapter 1, verse 6, it says, When you pray or when you ask God for things, you must believe and not doubt. And so what scripture would say is we worship um, the God who saves. God is not this passive, absent God, but Jesus says he's a good father who gives good things to to those who ask. And and so, like, I I can say it. We've seen God respond to prayer in some powerful ways here. We've seen people in in situations where it's like, man, it doesn't look good. And we've we've gone to our knees, we've prayed for the person, and, and then the doctor's going, don't I can't really understand it, can't give it an answer, but they're well. 
There's been times where we've prayed and, and God has um, provided for people or for situations. He's answered in things where we can go, that's the hand of God. But then there's also been times where we've prayed and God has said, not right now. He, he doesn't answer it necessarily in the way that we would hope and, and we would love a gospel that promises us comfort, ease, and safety. A gospel that says that we'll never go through uh, hardship, sickness, poverty, or danger. At the very least, we wish our gospel would say something like this, that if you are facing difficulty and hardship and troubles, all you have to do is say a prayer, and it's going to be short-lived. But, but here's the thing. The gospel promises us God's presence, but there's no guarantee that we won't be persecuted or get sick or suffer or die for our faith. Like, we have to understand some scriptures are prescriptive and others are descriptive. So a prescriptive text, it says, like, this is a clear command from God. Here's what you are to do. And others are like, here's, here's what happened in this situation. And Daniel chapter 3 is a primarily descriptive text. It's describing what God did. It's describing God's power to save and intervene and rescue. But it's not prescribing this. Like, you want to silence your haters? Go jump into a burning furnace and you'll, you'll shut them up. Like, that's not what it's saying. It's not, it's not saying this, that every time you find yourself in difficulty, God's going to spare you from trouble. That's, that's not what it's saying. So the question we have to answer is this. If God doesn't do what we know that he can do, do we trust his will? If he doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we would hope, am I going to still love him and obey him and persevere in the faith until the end? Will I maintain my convictions and not make compromises? Like, Please understand, the gospel doesn't promise that we'll always be safe. But the gospel promises and says that whatever happens, we are secure. Like God allowed these guys to go into the furnace but that's not safe. Like, it's in the fire, though, that we learn who God is, that we see his power, that we taste and see that he is good. And if we don't go into those fires at times, we wouldn't know who God is. We wouldn't see his heart, that, that he has the power to save like no other God. And, and sometimes God will spare us, and, and he allows us to kind of see another day. And other times for his purposes, he allows us to suffer and die. And so please understand, there's a big difference between being safe and being secure. In the gospel, it promises you security, but it does not promise you safety. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Paul asks, can anything separate us from the love Christ has for us? Can troubles or problems or sufferings or hunger or nakedness or danger or violent death? And then he's going to go on to list a lot of what if this happens and, and what if it comes to the worst case scenario? And Paul's answer at the end is even if, even if those things happen, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we are secure because Christ has won the war over sin and death, but there's still battles that we're going to have to fight against the, the forces of darkness and power in the spiritual world. And, and here's the thing. When we fight these battles, our primary weapon is prayer. Like that song we sing, Battle Belongs, that when we fight, we fight on our knees. And so... When we pray, when we go to God, we got to believe that he can keep us safe, but also believe that if he doesn't, he has a better plan. He has a higher aim in mind. But whether you're in safety or you're in suffering, you're secure because God is with you in the midst of it. And so here's, here's what I want. I want us to be a church that we pray bold, expectant 
prayers, believing that God can heal, that God can redeem, that God can restore, that, that God still works. But at the same time, I want us to be a church that also understands that God has a higher aim than maybe our temporal comfort in this world, that he's trying to get us to a better place. And so as Christians, the question is never if God will heal or deliver us. The question is only how and when. And so one day, one way or another, God is going to deliver us from suffering, from sin and death. And if it's not today, it's going to be when his kingdom comes in its fullness. And so even if the worst happens, even if your worst what-if fear comes true, you are secure. God's people are secure. 